Hi, I'm Jennifer Zollett. And I'm Larkin Bell. Welcome to our podcast, A Female Lens. For another segment of Whiffin, Women in Film in the News. Woo! Yay. Whiffin! Yeah! <laughs> yeah, so this week we're discussing Olivia Wilde's film, Booksmart, um, which she discovered after um, seeing a tweet about this, um, that her film was censored on airlines. Yes. Mm-hmm. And basically this is not a new thing. Airlines censor or have censored films all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it started because in the olden days, uh, there used to be one gigantic screen in the airline and oh, yeah. you bought headphones or they gave you headphones. And so everybody was watching this film. Totally forgot children, about this. Right? Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> so now we have these little screens on the back of every seat for the most part, and we don't all watch the same exact movie, mm-hmm. but there's still, it's still coming from that history. And additionally, you could be sitting next to a kid who can just watch your screen. So right. there's, that's where the censorship kind of historically came from and why they still have it. Mm-hmm. So basically, from our understanding, mm-hmm. the airlines will receive a version of the film mm-hmm. from the studio, essentially. Yes. And then at that point, it can undergo more censorship through a third-party company. Is that correct? I The way I understand it yes. is that the studio gives the airline an edited version to Got begin it. with. And it's based on a lot of things. It's based on what the studio wants to send the airline, what the airline, what their requirements for films Got entails. Because so it depends on which nation. Certain airlines have different different. requirements, yeah. Um, some airlines censor religion. Some airline, you know, so it just is depends. this whole thing. Got yeah. Um, but the films themselves are edited by a third party. That's my understanding. It's not actually the studio that's editing the film. It's this third party called Global Eagle, I believe. Um, And they give the film then to the airline and the airline shows the film. Got it. So that's setting us up for basically the matter at hand, which was Booksmart was majorly censored Mm -hmm. on this Delta flight that Olivia Wilde happened to be on and when she watched her film. Yes. And so certain things that were cut out were the, the words vagina, masturbation, UTI, all very yeah um interesting choices when right. you know fuck is still allowed yeah and the main the main point of contention is that the same sex love scenes That's were censored mm-hmm. um and they they're showed, females female yes love scenes, yeah yes. lesbian love scenes female female love scenes um where they did show like straight characters kissing mm-hmm. so that was still left in the film mm-hmm. however when two women were kissing that was what was censored mm-hmm. so that's sort of this bigger like question and issue at hand of like okay well what exactly are we censoring because it's not consistent and it's definitely biased um and there was also wasn't it just earlier this week that a similar kind of censorship of Rocket Man mm-hmm. was criticized. Yes. So it was another example of queer right. love scenes being cut. Yeah. And that actually, seemed disproportionate from like straight 
Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, actually in 2016, the film Carol was extremely censored. Hmm. And it was the same thing. It started with a tweet. Cameron Esposito (laughs) tweeted about it when she saw it on the plane. um, That they edited the main characters so that we never see them kiss. Um, uh, Rudy Mara and Kate Blanchett's characters. And so it's not like this is the first time. It's just it's kind of coming up in the... Right, you know, again, mm-hmm. but it it's interesting that it the focus is specifically on it seems like um, same sex women love scenes. Yeah, and even more generally, just scenes involving female sexuality and female yeah, pleasure, definitely. Which I think is kind of speaking to a larger cultural question issue thing that seems to come up multiple times Mm -hmm. um and yeah and as you said like olivia wilde tweeted about it and then there was a huge you know uproar on twitter basically about it and online and media outlets were covering it and then delta basically came out and was like okay we're gonna put the uncensored version back on Mm -hmm. on the airlines yeah um yeah i guess i'm curious about a couple things i think it's interesting that these are these are the things that are inappropriate in a film um i think that kind of yeah, I mean, this is censorship, I guess, in all films, because isn't there a whole thing with, you know, how films are rated and, and how that yeah, all goes? Yeah, I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah, I feel like you've told NBA, me about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, it's just rating films, so we have that to begin with, but then it's like, we allow our films to show on airlines, but then, well, they're edited as well, and there's Yeah, it really asks the question, like, what is allowed and what is not? Mm-hmm. And I think even deeper, like, when we are watching, yeah, female sexuality play out, and, and, on, and these are in a positive light. I mean, unfortunately, how many rape scenes have we seen mm-hmm. um, that is also depicting, you know, a sexual right. act with a woman? But that's been allowed so many times. And then this, or, you know, I don't yeah. know. I would question on film, on, on, on flights, I mean. Oh, gotcha. I don't know. I mean, we're talking about flights, so I would question yes, that's what exactly has been allowed on flights. That's a good I point. I heard there was some nudity in Game of Thrones that was allowed. So it's like, and each airline is different. Totally. So... But, I would, yeah. Yeah. But on the I whole, I saying. feel like, yeah, and it, even mm-hmm. just most media, I feel like we that is allowed and right. and deemed, you know, quote unquote, appropriate. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess I don't have a fully fledged thought on that, but I just think it is important to question. And I think this is kind of getting at, yeah, the, the, the grappling with what we're seeing and what we're allowed to see. Right. Um, and while I'm glad that this decision has been rescinded or changed, mm-hmm. it kind of is like, is this just one random thing that is allowed? Right. Or are we actually getting to the root of what's what's happening? Well, and especially since in 2016, the exact same thing sort of happened with Carol. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, then this shouldn't have happened, right? Um, so in next year, and two year, are we still going to see censorship of these exact same types of scenes? Or will they change kind of their policy on what exactly is allowed or censored um, and what we deem worse than like an R rating? Totally. Which is strange. Yeah. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. And like, and I, I do agree that the, the major part of the issue was the deletion of the female sex scenes, essentially. But I do think that the deletion of certain words yeah, is that's... a huge thing. Like, why are we deleting UTI? Like, why are we taking out yeah. um, vagina? Right. I don't... That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Well, like, well yeah, I mean... Who's making these decisions? You know, the obvious answer is the yeah. patriarchy and misogyny. Right. <laughs> the stuff True. that yeah. we... This It needs to be called out, right? Because... Mm-hmm. From our perspective, it may seem illogical 
but it's based in just like these traditions of ignoring or suppressing female or like women's sexuality um, for a lot of different reasons, but like social and cultural mm-hmm. basis. Totally. And that's why I think this specific example is so intriguing because it is kind of off the beaten path of entertainment and media a little bit, right? It's like adjacent, you know, (laughs) Um, we love adjacent here. Um, But I think, yeah, it really is just showing like how pervasive the entertainment industry is in so many different parts of our lives um, and how important it is to really know what we're doing for lack of a better phrase to be more like aware and conscious of how like how these censorship processes are taking place like i didn't know about any of this until this story came out how there's these third party companies Mm -hmm. doing the editing and i mean the the delta spokeswoman you know making the statement about Booksmart said that they're gonna sort of revise their process Mm -hmm. and pay more attention to because like the the edited version of Booksmart on these flights was more strict or like more um, strictly edited and censored than what Delta's uh, standards or policies are. Mm So it's sort of like you're just, you're outsourcing that work Mm -hmm. to this third party. You're not looking closely at what they're actually doing. So now at least that airline is going to um, Mm -hmm. pay closer attention, which is good. Yeah. Well, and the last little bit about just censoring and editing these films has to do with the length of films on airlines. Mm -hmm. I read this from an article that we'll link um, in our show notes Mm -hmm. from How Stuff Works. And the author says, One film expert checked the running times of movies shown on two major airlines, Virgin and Air Canada, and found that two-thirds were the same length as the theatrical presentation, while 14% were shorter, which gives you an idea of how many in-flight movies are cut. Intriguingly, 21% were longer, most likely due to a director's cut. Anyways. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. I think part of it, too, is that you know, they try to make films the length of certain flights. Mm. Um, so there is also that editing that has happened. So crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just think like overall it kind of makes me think of like, like back in like senior year English and in high school where our teachers would always be like, examine your sources and Mm. like know what's happening. And I just think that's a good reminder in today's age, no matter what. I mean, I feel like it's always important when you're online and, and checking that out, but didn't think that I would apply this to watching movies on airplanes because I mean honestly I'm sometimes pumped to watch films on airplanes I'm like oh I get to catch up yeah and now I'm like am I actually seeing the the real film like as intended by the director mm-hmm. maybe not probably probably not, not. yeah <laughs> I mean honestly if anything has taught me this, mm-hmm. this story I will now question and now you know yeah exactly yeah. Yeah, well, but uh, listeners, if you have any thoughts on censorship or, I guess, watching films on airplanes, <laughs> let us know. Email us at lens at gmail.com. We'd love to hear. And now, here's our interview with Allison Kelly. Allison is the cinematographer behind the ABC drama Grand Hotel, which is executive produced and stars Eva Longoria. Allison has also worked on other notable projects, including AMC's Dietland, MTV's Finding Carter, and Star's Counterpart. Enjoy! Well, thank you so much for joining us, Allison. We're really excited to talk with you today. I'm so excited to be here. Great! We usually start at the beginning, and we're curious, how did you become interested in cinematography? I was taking a class called Film as Art in high school that was taught by the English teacher who just 
was a film buff. And it was such a wonderful class because at the time I hadn't met any adults that did things for careers that I wanted to do. And I was so panicked about leaving high school because I just was like sort of looking for my calling. And I remember the day I learned that what a cinematographer did and I was like, a light bulb went off. I was like, that's it. That's what I have to do. I mean, I didn't realize that I was getting into a very male dominated profession at the time, but I was so passionate. I was a photographer. I am a photographer and I also love storytelling. And so it was just perfect. And did you go to school for cinematography? So I, um, Went to, I wanted to go to liberal arts school and just get a well-rounded education. And so I did that in New York City. And it was great. And I did some film studies. The school that I went to didn't have a film program. Uh, it was Columbia undergrad, but they don't do production in undergrad. Or they didn't. Um, but then right after school, I got a lot of part-time jobs at a film school repairing lights and as a photo assistant and fashion photography and all these different jobs that led me to eventually be camera assisting and I joined the union as a camera assistant back in the day and then was able to watch all these wonderful DPs on set and I learned so much from the crew members from just everywhere it was just a great learning environment And at some point I decided to apply to AFI and go back to school because it's sort of a two-year program where I could just focus on cinematography. And so I did that, and then I've just been a DP ever since. Uh, So how do you approach collaborating with a director, and what excites you about that part of the filming experience? It starts with the script. And I... If I read a script and I'm into it, it's like you can see it coming to life. And it's so much fun sitting down with a director and just talking through what they find in the script, what they see, the beats of the script. And so we'll usually start over like a long lunch or just a whole lot of coffee or something, talking through the entire movie. And out of that comes a lot of stylistic references and things that have brought them to the material and what they hope for it. And and we sort of just tease out from there a visual plan, which leads with some directors to shot listing. Other directors prefer to work differently. It's sort of everybody has their own system. And I've worked with so many first-time directors, which has been a real joy because it's fun, the enthusiasm people bring to their first project. And... Um, And everyone is so different. I mean, that's a really cool thing about the collaborative nature of it. I like that idea of a visual plan. I like that phrase. I think that's... Yeah. Yeah, and how that does, I guess, differ from director to director and how they collaborate with you and, like, what they turn to you for and, like, what you can provide. Well, if you think of it like a toolbox, like, you have... In the cinematography wheelhouse, you have lots of different things. You have camera movement, you have lenses, you have color palette, you have pattern repetition, like, and then you can work with these other departments like editing and production design to underline all that in costume design. And so a lot of my work with the director is they may say, I want this scene to feel 
bleak or she's lonely or this is ecstatic or they just had a revelation and you try to figure out what that means to the director and translate it into a visual image whether that's like a big high wide or the camera's swooping in to meet them or you know it's it's different things and it's not always the same thing for the same sentiment it's depends on people's you know the language we're setting up for the film but also people's own life experience and do you have I feel like we, we've kind of talked to other cinematographers who have almost like a directory of images. Do you have something like that? Or how, how do you kind of communicate then when you're going back and forth talking about a vision, um, like what you're imagining? I do have a gigantic file of lookbook images. It's sort of in a perpetual state of adding on things, and so I have to keep organizing it. And then some of them are hard because I try to file them under lighting, but then it's really also about composition, or maybe it's a emotional moment with a flare. And like they it, just trying to organize it, because now I have hundreds of images. And when I started, I only had a manageable amount and I knew what was in there but now I'm sort of scrolling through because I'm prepping a new project and it's just like oh yeah that image but like I, I'll know something in my head that I want to refer to and I have to look for a while now I need to organize it although I have to say the internet is great for that just being able to search based I mean Pinterest I don't know if I want to name drop but um <laughs> there are programs that like let you search pretty specific keywords cool yeah, it's, it's almost like that's your dictionary for, like, translating yeah. whatever it is. It is. It's fun. Sometimes I've even resorted to shooting things myself, like, photographing things myself, just trying to explain. I remember working with a director, and we were trying to talk about French overs in a car. And at the time, I was having a really hard time finding them. Just, I mean, which means basically you're shooting from the back seat, looking at people from the back seat so you're sort of behind their heads but and I was like let me just show you and so I we, we just photographed it sometimes that's just easier yeah <laughs> so a lot of filmmaking is just about making decisions as the cinematographer you are making a lot of those technical decisions and we're wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about that process so um there are a lot of things that drive the technical decisions budget being one of them um and then I'm on doing been doing a lot of television lately, and sometimes the studio has a request that they need a certain deliverable. Because I've been shooting a lot on Alexas, but then this current project I'm on, we have to deliver actual 4K, and so I'm having to evaluate new camera systems, which I'm taking as a learning experience, and it's super fun just getting to test things out. Um, it's impossible to keep up with all the all of the technology. It changes so quickly, and every trade show, there, I mean, the lighting, the grip, the uh, drones, everything, it's just... So what I do is let the story drive the decision, ideally. Like, maybe you want to be handheld and in a lot of tiny spaces, and so you need a smaller camera or something that's, like, lower profile so you can shoot less obtrusively or... Maybe you need a camera that's, like, for what I'm doing now, that's going to be large format and shoot four... Or we're actually shooting 8K just because it's the look of the show. Um, most... What I try to do is talk to people, to build relationships with people at the different vendors and rental houses, and 
have people that you can call and just say, hey, what's, what's the latest thing from this? Or what do you think about these lenses? Can I come in and test this compared to this? And then take the time and prep to really do the work and, and hopefully include the director in that process if they want to be included in that. I mean, it should be something that's coming from a story perspective. I mean, although it's hard because then there are projects that are just budget driven and I own a camera. And so I'm like, I'll just use that because I have it. Like, so does that answer the question? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I think it's also, it's, we're just curious in kind of like the chain of collaboration. Yeah. Just like you said, like there is so much and it sounds like what you're saying is that you're open to what other ideas people can bring to you. If you're like, Hey, here's what I need. Here's what the project's dictating. I'm open to whatever those suggestions are. And sometimes it's fun just to take each new project as a way to learn a new thing, whether it's a new kind of lighting. I mean, the led lighting has just gone. It's, it's changed what you is possible and the speed at which you can work on a stage. It's sort of spectacular. And I wouldn't have known it if I hadn't just embraced it on one show. Interesting. Wait, can you tell us more about yeah. that? Like, how was it different when you first started out? Kind of just when I started out, there were tungsten lights and HMI lights and Kino flows, but those were also like bicolor, which is either tungsten or daylight. And so you either have, if you're doing a stage show, where the goal is to sort of rig or at least have the major units in place so that you're not starting cold on any set. Everything's sort of lit to be daylight and then nightlight. And um, it used to be you would either do two fixtures or have a bicolor thing where you could switch between daylight or moonlight and uh, and tungsten. And, um, and now they have LED lights that can do thousands of colors and they're all on a dimmer board and the last show I did I had this wonderful dimmer board operator who would just be next to me with an iPad and we would be talking through let's do this here and this here and it's it's almost instantaneous and we could go from like dusk to late afternoon to this in 10 minutes it was just I mean the speed at which it's a lot they're a lot more expensive and we're going through that right now in the show (laughs) prepping because the producers are like why does it cost you know three times as much and I'm like but you don't understand it will be so fast and we have kids so hopefully that will make the limited hours yeah wow but it's I mean the LED it's just they're very versatile yeah there's so many more possibilities and you are saving time and brain space to then focus on other things like it doesn't like an old-fashioned stage if you were using big tungsten units would be everyone's sweating at some point and this it's like you barely notice one of your latest projects was DPing the TV series Grand Hotel, executive produced by Eva Longoria. What was it like collaborating with Eva, and how did you go about creating the world of Grand Hotel? Eva is wonderful, and she is so organized. We both, she directed the first episode that I photographed, because I didn't do the pilot, but then we basically, they filmed that in Miami, and then we built this massive set on two stages in Manhattan Beach Studios. And so she would come in and we would walk the stages and and she had overall executive producer notes that she wanted just for season long, like, why don't we have this? Like, she's super clear about the look she wants. But then she directed the the first episode and we spent just 
several days shot listing and really talking through all the beats. And she's spent so much time on set, I think, as, as a director and as an actress that she's just treated it as this film school almost, where like she just is so fluent in film ease. <laughs> that um, it was really fun working with her. And she, it, we, so the first day we went out, it was because none of the sets were ready, we did a giant stunt sequence that was like two blocks long in Westwood. And it was a guy chasing a car and it ends up like he gets hit by the car. And we had three cameras, a bunch of like different tools that, um, you know, it was like a ton of extras, but also an open street. And then we got there on the day and the location guy was like, oh, you know, we can't actually be here right now. We're not supposed to be here till 10. And so there were all these monkey wrenches, but we were so prepped. And Eva's so quick that she was, we were just like, all right, we're going to go to this. We're going to be back here. We're going to do this. And we like got the whole thing, but it was such a great tone to set, I think, for the show, because we had a female first AD and a female stunt coordinator. And the four of us sort of ran that day. And so everyone else just fell in line because they were like, oh my God, they totally know what they're like. We were so well prepared and bossy in a good way where we're like this is happening this is happening you go here that every it just was like a wonderful season start anyway and the show's fun it's it's a big glossy drama and it was really fun because I haven't gotten to do one of those on a like the size of the sets was just spectacular how do you decide which projects to work on? I know you talked a little bit about the script speaking to you, but what's that process like and, and what what calls to you when you read a script that you're like, I really want to work on this? I think there are probably three main things. The, the first is the material and feeling like the script has is a good script and tells an important story. And I got into film because I really believe in telling stories that haven't been told before and so I really get excited about things that are either showing some part of life that people don't normally see or think about or just you know an, an interesting subject material the second is the people involved and so I've done projects that were maybe not ticking off the first category, but with people that I love, simply because it's fun to work with people that you love. And it's sort of one of the great things about the collaborative nature of film is you get to go to work and hang out with friends and make something creative, and, and that's fun and rewarding in its own way. And the third thing is probably when things are just a good challenge, whether it's a country I haven't been to and filmed in before or some type of, I don't know, something new that you that I feel like I can tackle and learn something. I mean, I feel like you learn something every day on film sets, but in a, in a bigger way, a challenge. The scripts I can't do are the ones that, like, I sort of screen for, I don't know, possibly offensive material, or just things that are not going to... that will offend my ethics. You spoke about your interest in photography and how that has been part of your artistic process. Can you tell us about your own photography and how that's informed your cinematography? Yeah, and it's interesting because I feel like my own photography is 
it's such a personal thing, photography, and it's something you can just walk out and do on your own. And I find it to be more contemplative and meditative. Whereas film, you have 40 people and everybody's talking all the time and it's a different vibe. But I do think there's something about just observing both things that is a through line, just like being quiet enough to and, and observant enough to to just see people and see light change and it takes a lot of that to work on a film set successfully because you also have to just observe personality types around you and like sort of feel the room and and not like it's a, it's a collaborative thing but there's an art to like really making it fun and not contentious um I um I mean, I think photography just taught me a lot about light and what I like and trusting my gut about aesthetics because at some point, if you brought like 40 DPs into the same room, they'd light it 40 different ways. It's not like there's a right way to light. Um, but there is something that you feel in your gut that is like when you know, you're working and working and trying to get it there and you're like, ah, it's done. And that's a totally subjective thing. Like, Nobody can. Nobody else would ever be able to say that's done for me, because it's my own eye. So I guess it just helped me hone my eye too. Yeah, I love that idea of like it's right for you, but yeah. that is such a subjective thing. Because I feel the same way too, like directing, and it's like, oh, you can just feel like that moment's not working, or it is working. Yeah. And then yeah, but just what you're talking about, like we've talked about this with a lot of the women we've interviewed of, of just knowing. Yeah, it's like developing your taste, essentially, yeah. and developing, yeah, your gut to then act upon what you feel is, like, going to be the best way to communicate something. Yeah, and it's really important to trust your gut. That's probably one of the best things I've learned just in life, not even in cinematography, but there's so many people that will tell you different things that on film sets and just, you know, no, you should do it this way. That's the wrong way. Why don't you do this? And like 1 million suggestions. But like, if you just listen to your gut, you sort of have the answer already. When starting out on a new project, what do you turn to for inspiration in building the visual language of that world? I always start with a story and it depends. There's certain projects that call for something very unique and it depends on what the story... I, like, I did a film that was a very experimental film in New York um, that half of it was this completely dreamlike theater play. And so I did a lot of work researching more experimental, theatrical productions. Like, it, had a, it was a total departure from what the real world was. And that was really fun. And just looking at ways that you can the new things that stage lighting can do and, and just like they have these moving gobos now that like we could and change and led stuff change the color of and so it would you, i could make something feel like the ocean and then click it into like a bright sunny thing and it was just getting to play with that stuff i don't know it's a, i mean i did another movie where we did a film that was like referencing um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And so, you know, we watched that and just also looked at movies from that period. It depends on the project. Um, I think it's also just important to like 
take long walks and think about it because sometimes inspiration comes when you relax and you're not sort of like pressing your self to come up with the entire visual thing like even on the thing I'm on now I sort of hit a wall the other day where I couldn't connect all the dots we have a couple different themes in our show and I was like just go walk and I and it's like it helps to just sort of mull it a little bit and then come back and sort of remine the images and I have a huge art book library so that helps because sometimes I'll just stand and stare at the shelf and wait for something to jump at me (laughs) (laughs) so another one of your latest projects is called inventing tomorrow in which you provided additional cinematography what exactly does that mean and what is the collaboration like at that point in the process this one inventing tomorrow the main dp was martina rodwan who's a friend and a fantastic documentary dp and uh, she had done, there were four legs of this. It's about these high school students that go to ISEF and they have science projects that are going to change the world. And it's super um, inspiring in this sort of bleak time. And there was one in Malaysia, one in India, one guy from Hawaii, and then in Monterey there were three teenage boys. And I, she couldn't do the Monterey part. And so she called to say, can you do this? And so they showed me a bunch of the footage and she really talked me through her style. And we, we had long conversations about it and also just getting to see what she had photographed in some of the other locations really helped. Um, and then I went out with the director. It was just she and I, and then we had a local crew and we followed these three teenage boys around for a week. And then eventually we all, there were, ISIF happened, which is the science fair in LA, and there were four of us filming. Martina was sort of the ringleader, and then we all followed our teams. And, um, but it helps to have one person set that main look, and she has a very specific eye and great taste. And it was the best compliment, too, because after she saw the dailies, she was like, oh, my God, I felt like I shot it, which, like, in some ways was, or, you know, something to that effect. But I was like, all you want to do as a second unit person is completely fold into that style. Like, the last thing I would want is for it to stick out as, like, a different DP. So that meant a lot to me. It was, like, such high praise. <laughs> I was like, yes! Documentary, too, you get called on a lot to do that just because the nature of documentaries tends to go over longer periods of time and infrequent shoots where like you shoot a little and then like three months later you need a weekend to do depending on the subject but like they can go on for decades I mean so it's like it makes sense that you have multiple DPs and it's really important I think to have it feel um, coherent what advice for aspiring cinematographers do you have I would say Try to get on as many sets as possible. Uh, It was such a gift as an aspiring up-and-coming DP to get to watch more established DPs at work and to see them dealing with situations and talent and really big lighting setups that I don't think I would have... I mean, it wasn't my 
milieu when you start as a baby dp you're doing like you know a couple lights and you're in a room with some people like i mean usually it's a smaller start it's not like you're gonna go out on your first thing and i don't know maybe some people do it but try to light a giant night exterior but um it was really fun and i also learned a lot um just about set etiquette and politics. Like uh, back in the day, I was a camera assistant for Ellen Curris, who's directing now, but she shot so many movies. And she was one of an earlier generation of women DPs that it was such a great thing to have a role model and just to see how she dealt with both that, the, just the, it is a male dominated business and how she sort of finessed that and how wonderful she was as a leader. She would go around at the end of the night and just thank everyone on the crew personally and be like, thank you for a great day. Thank you. And I try to do that still like, and have every, like to know stuff about everybody in the crew and not only their names, but like what's happening with their kids. And like, cause you spend so much time with people. It's nice to like have some, shorthand and familiarity and and then it becomes like this joking not joking but like a family that has fun together which is really fun I mean it's really like the hours are too long to work with people that you don't want to be around um that did that no the other the other advice (laughs) is um to the I feel like the most important thing when you're picking projects is to pick good scripts because I think it's hard when you you tend to pour a lot of it's a lot of labor of love it's a lot of working for not a lot of money um and it's better to try to pick projects that will have legs and that will go to a festival or be seen on the web or people will like it's it's a more satisfying thing i've done a lot of features that just never saw the light of day and it's at the end of the day, I mean, while it's wonderful to work on that, and I learned a lot, it's just, it's hard. It's like you put so much of your life into it. Um, and then the last thing I would say is to value yourself um, and to work with people that value your, your skill too and to not work with people that don't treat you well. But I think like being a DP, like and as you've like mentioned um, previously, it is such a male-dominated space. Can you talk a little bit about your journey, like through that? I think it's gotten. I'm really delighted that in my career span, I've seen a time when I've actually gotten jobs because people are seeking out women DPs. I do think. And I agree with you that I hope there's a day where we're just all DPs because I don't feel like I'm any different. And people ask me what it's like to be a woman DP. I'm like, I've never been a man DP, so I have nothing to compare it to. But I do think that there are plenty of jobs I've lost for being a woman DP over the years. And that's that was really frustrating. And it's great that there's more opportunity now for people coming up in the business and for everyone else. I mean, so many friends who are DPs are working now, and it's it's exciting that all of us are on projects. It's just, it's, it's a good time. I do think it takes, cre- like, really honing your asshole dar. I'm sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to say yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Love but, that. <laughs> um... <laughs> But, like, I've gotten my interviewing skills down to a really fine 
antennae, like when I interview crew, because I tend to work in a lot of different cities, and so I've had to work with crew that are new to me, because they don't always let you travel your keys. And um, and on my first couple shows, I really ended up with some real doozies that were just like second guessing everything I said and well she said this but I think we should go over here and you know like just it's hard and it's hard because I think when I started I was also feeling like I wanted to like have people feel included and not be you know I think now I wouldn't put up with that but um you learn but I also have learned how to really pick people like the last show I did it was the best crew, so much fun. And, um, and it was just, everyone was so happy to be there. We had women in every department and just badass women. And it was, but it's not like men can't be badass too. And it's just everybody sort of being decent human beings together and respecting that we can all do the work equally. And that goes a long way. It's like, oh, like there really isn't a difference. It's we do want to hear, we saw Clemency at Sundance and we're both very struck by the cinematography and we're excited to see that you had worked on the film as second unit DP. Yeah. Can you tell us about that experience? I was so excited to do it. Um, Eric Branco, who is the main DP, did such an awesome job and Chinoy and him just did the best um, visual Bible, sort of. And so when I got hired, basically they had been editing, I don't know for how long, and realized in editing they just wanted some other pieces and so and he wasn't available and so they had reached out to me and they showed me the rough cut so that and then and then I sat down with the director and we really talked through what her logic was because it has such a specific language and part of the strength of that movie is just she really just makes these incredible visual choices about holding on people and not doing the obvious edits or, or like not obvious, but the expected edits. And so it was a lot of that. And then we went to Michigan and did all the drone stuff, the over the prison, all the, the prison exterior. And, um, and then we had a little bit of shooting in LA. It was fun. I mean, it was a delight. I, I love, I find it really fun which is such a, when you love what you do, it's like everything's just a sort of a new fun challenge. So like it was fun and I, I, ended, I knew the editor too. And so like we talked and like, it just was a good team of people. I'm so excited for them too. It's really strong. Yeah, just... And it's for a first time out of the gate, sort of, I don't know if Eric had done a, anyway, I just, I got a hand. I mean, they really made something that was like completely unique and talk about like really getting visual inspiration from the story. They really um, went for it and, and prevailed. It was great. What is your dream project to work on? Uh, currently, probably a science fiction with like really strong female characters. I mean, I don't know. It doesn't have to be action, although I like our thriller because I would love to do something like that that's like darker moodier photography because the last anyway I won't go into that but um but the science fiction element a I'm a big fan of science fiction and b it just you have so much poetic license to make the world you want and to really bend it to your um story and your script and like the rules are sort of I don't know I feel I just yeah 
I would love to do that. Uh, we end every interview with our rapid response segment, three, two, one action. Three, your favorite, most flu- influential, memorable film. The Conformist. Two, dream person you would like to work with. There are several. I would say that the tie right now would be Claire Denis and Andrea Arnold. One, best advice you've ever received. Trust your gut. And action. What are you most looking forward to right now? Uh, I'm starting a new series called Diary of a Female President. And it's always super fun to make a look of a new show. And I have some awesome collaborators. And so I'm digging into that. We're spending the next week sort of fleshing it all out. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And where can people follow you? Are you on social media? Do you have a website? Uh, I have a website, which is just my name.net. But then um, I'm on Instagram at abirdk. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, Allison. Oh, my God. It was so much fun. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. You can find us at afemalelens.com and at afemalelens on Instagram and Twitter. You can email us at afemalelens at gmail.com. And you can download the show anywhere you listen to podcasts and on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you left us a review. Our theme song was composed by Jesse Nelson. Our logos were created by Megan Cafferty. Elise Welch is our associate producer. And A Female Lens was created by Jennifer Zollett and Larkin Bell. 